this morning, as uh, I already uh, hinted, uh, we're going to be looking at the end of Romans chapter 1, which talks about the darkness of our sin. In the darkness, it talks about the darkness of our sin that we might more clearly see the brightness of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that there is bold relief in a, in a vast difference between where we are by nature and where we are because God loves us uh, through his son Jesus Christ. And that's how Paul starts off this gospel. So he starts off by, by telling us how good the good news is and then how bad the bad news is so that the gulf between the two might help us to appreciate all that he has done for us. And so in order to make sure that we see the, the, the larger picture, I want to read the last part of Romans chapter 1. Beginning verse 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and creeping things. And so here we have an introduction really both to the good news, the gospel, that's what, that's what gospel means, it is good news, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we have an introduction to the bad news, uh, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for the images resembling mortal man. And so God gives us that, and then here comes the text that we're going to look at today in verse 24. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurities, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, but gave God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. 
They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, adventurers of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they did not, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And in this last section of chapter 1, uh, the Apostle Paul is continuing to build this case about the darkness of sin and about the difficulty of mankind's moral rebellion against God. And as he does that, he's trying to make more and more clear the need that each one of us have to be made right with God by somebody outside of ourselves because in ourselves we have significant trouble. We have significant evil. And we cannot fix that problem by ourselves. So, I just want to show you sort of the, the case that he's building. After he tells us about the gospel in 16 and 17, in verse 18, he talks about the wrath of God being revealed, currently being revealed from heaven for two reasons. Against all ungodliness, which is rebellion against God, and all unrighteousness, which is mistreatment of other people. So he goes both vertical and horizontal in building a case that every single person has these two issues. They are not right with God, and at some time or other they have not been right with one another. And they get that way because they suppress or hold down the truth. They refuse to act according to the truth. That's what I mean by inner righteousness, suppressing the truth. So that's, that's the case that he's building now at the end of this chapter. That all of us are in rebellion against God. All of us are having problems with other human beings. It comes to a, a essentially a, a central statement of his thesis in, in verse 23, where it says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. So there is this exchange that ancient mankind used to do by exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images, and that really is the same exchange that we do today. Exchanging the glory of the immortal God or things that we imagine, or things that we make up. And so it is this exchange then that leads us down the path that verses 24 through 32 explain. And so that's what I want you to see. Verse 24 then starts by saying, therefore, the reason, the reason I went back and read you that all of the rest of those verses is because they are linked by this one word, therefore, to what's coming now. In other words, you won't understand what's coming now if you don't understand what has just come. Therefore, God gave them up. Why? Because they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. That's why. Therefore, God gave them up. And you'll notice, probably the most resounding theme in this section is that God gave them up. Verse, it shows up first in verse 24. God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity. 
It shows up again in verse 26. For this reason, God gave him up to dishonorable passion. It shows up again in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so, in order to, again, to understand this, in order to kind of recognize not just the text, but I, I want you to know, in order to understand the world around us, we have to understand these texts. Because they have great explanatory value for what is happening in America today. Because three different times here it tells us God gave them up. And so I, I just want you to think about the implications of that. And it's just, it's just as clear as you can imagine God gave them over. God gave them up. In other words, He no longer intercepted them. God refused to reach down and change their course. He gave them up. As I was thinking about this, I uh, was um, blessed in my own personal time uh, reading the Bible to be reading in Isaiah, of all places. And this is what said in the Corinthians, exactly what we see in Romans 1. It says, We have all become like one who lives clean, and all righteous deeds are like, polluted, like a polluted garment. Okay? He's making the same case, really, that even the good things we do are polluted and therefore don't really count. But this is, this is why. This is what he said. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So what does it mean for God to give us up? It means that our iniquities themselves, not, not somehow the fire and brimstone from God raining down from heaven, somehow destroys us. It's, you know what? The very sin that we do ourselves carries its own consequence. The very brokenness that we so readily feel that cause, it causes us to act in ways that break us even more. Our iniquity, like the wind carries away, the very next verse says, There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you, God, speaking God, you have hidden your face from us. Okay, that, that I think is what it means for God to give them over. Is that God, God is not going to, to be obvious to them. And then, you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So it is the iniquities themselves that are causing our souls to dissolve. And so, he says, God gave them over. For God to give us over is for God to let us have the full experience of our sin. The full experience of our sin is vastly different than it's generally portrayed on TV. On TV, on TV there's sin that is funny. 
There is sin that is somehow entertaining. There is sin that is light-hearted and not a very big deal. And unfortunately, apparently that is how it works. How it works is that God, God allows us to do maybe the very same things they do on TV. Only then it destroys our soul. Those sins themselves carry with them their own penalty. We melt in the hands of our iniquity. And so he starts off by saying, therefore, verse 24, therefore God gave them over. God let them go. He let them have the fruit of their uh, sin. He let them live the life that they were going to live. And he did not force a correction. Okay. Why did he do that? Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Here again is an, a, a, a restatement of verse 22, an exchange where God, where, where people exchange something of value for something that's not of value. Something that is infinitely precious for something that is worthless. They exchange the truth about God for life. This is at the heart of what it means to sin against God. In Genesis chapter 3, in the very first sin was exactly this. The serpent met Eve and said, God did not truly say this. God did not really mean what God said. And there was this exchange where they began to believe a lie the serpent told them rather than the truth that God had told them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we have been on that path ever since. And it is this exchange that is still devastating. Yes, we had the privilege of um, performing a funeral. And I just reminded the people who were there that it's really, it, it's really at funerals that this becomes most clear. Because we all have to tell ourselves some story when we get to that day. We all have to, we all have to come up with something that's going to give meaning to the end of our lives or, or hope for the person who's just passed away. Or comfort to the people who are still sitting there at the memorial service. And I mean, I have heard all sorts of things. And I've heard stories about people floating over the, over the memorial service hoping that the people there will go out for beer. I've heard stories of, um, People who, who make up things that say this person was a good person, therefore, you know, certainly God will take them into heaven. When there's really been nothing all along of God in their life 
but they're making up this comforting story. They're making up something, some kind of narrative that they hope will bring comfort and peace at the end of life. And that, for me, is when it's really clear that they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The reason that we're we're reading Romans, the reason we're going through Romans chapter 1 is so that you don't do that. So you can tell yourself the truth and find hope in the truth and recognize that you don't need to deny bad news or pretend that there isn't bad news in order to have hope, but rather you simply need to believe the good news which is stronger than the bad news. So don't make this exchange. They exchanged to God for lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And here is the central problem. Is that we have become the center and replaced God at the center. We have become the ones who are the measure of all things rather than God himself. And this is one of the reasons that I think we, we struggled with chapter uh, 1, verse 20, when it says they are without excuse. And we say, well, how can they be without excuse? Because, you know, after all, they're people, right? They're, they can't be that bad. They can't, they have to be fair with them. And we have this measure. And we're measuring by the creature rather than measuring by the Creator. If we were to measure anybody's behavior by the character of God or His righteous standard, it would be an easy measure. Whether they're, whether they're an um, innocent, innocent savage in the jungle or whether they're somebody down the street, if we were to measure them by God, it would be very clear that they are sinners. But we, we have thrown that measure off and we have exchanged that and we said, let's measure them by the creature. And this creature is better than some of the other creatures, so, you know, who knows? You see, that's been the thing. We have made ourselves the center. That's what it means, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. And so everything that comes now verses 26 on, is coming because we have thrown off the Creator and we have said the creature is now the measure of what's right and wrong. The creature is now the measure of what is good and bad. The creature is the one who must be happy under every circumstance. Now, that's that's where he's going now. And then he gets to verse 26. He says, for this reason... For what reason? Okay. For the reason that they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. For the reason that they exchange. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God did not intercept them in their pursuit of their own desires. For the women, it says, exchange the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And he clearly, he clearly is explaining now, in visible terms, what we have, what he's already stated in invisible terms. 
You see, it's invisible for somebody to exchange the um, truth for a lie. You look at me and you say, have you exchanged the truth of God for a lie? I don't know. You can't see that, right? And so even by his language, you say, there is an exchange, and this is one of the symptoms of the exchange. The women exchange the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And so there's an exchange that goes on here. And he's pointing out here homosexual uh, activity among women, the natural relations being the ones that you would expect to see explained in an anatomy textbook, ones that you would explain to bring about reproduction, those are natural. And they abandon the natural ones, the ones that were contrary to nature. And he borrowed, he borrowed language that was in the public conversation of his day. The public conversation, as Paul wrote this, with the philosophers and uh, ancient Greeks and things, had to do with what was natural. And the reality is, his case so far, if you remember back to, to um, verses 19 and 20, you can clearly see who God is from creation. You can clearly see his invisible attributes and his divine nature. All of this is natural. So his argument is natural. He does not cite the Old Testament here. Though he has it. Though he has it, and he could. He is saying, listen, even... Even the Greek philosophers recognize what's natural and what's not natural. And the exchange that people are making shows itself by abandoning what's natural and by going with what's unnatural. Okay, one of the ways you can think about this, I don't know how long it's been since you've been to the doctor, but the doctor will take this little reflex now, this little triangular maroon hammer, right? And he'll be sitting there at the edge of the thing and they'll go, what? Give him this big kick, right? Or a little kick. And you think, why would they check if I can kick? Why would I go to the doctor, pay them money, and have them hit me with the hammer? Well, the, the, the reality is, what they're trying to uncover, or actually what they're hoping not to uncover, I suppose, is something that they can't see that would manifest itself in your inability to respond in a natural way. And so, this exchange here that he's talking about, when he's talking about... Um, Homosexuality is basically this is uh, this is an indication that the internal exchange has already happened. And we see it again in the next verse: the men likewise gave up the natural relations with women, or consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And the reason it brings it up here is simply to say that this is this is the reflex, one of 
one of the most visible reflexes, let me say, of the exchange that happened in the heart for the truth and the lie. Okay, the, the Bible doesn't really say very much about homosexuality. When it does, it's clearly forbidden every single time. But his point here isn't to bring it up in order to condemn it. His point here in bringing it up is to show us that it is a symptom of a different problem. In that different problem, it may manifest itself in other ways, which we'll see in just a moment. But it's hard to deny when that exchange manifests itself in homosexual behavior. Now, just a, just a couple things about this. One of, the, one of the more difficult things in the whole conversation that our culture is having, that homosexuality has to do with sexual orientation. Okay? The, the Bible doesn't talk about sexual orientation. Okay, that's, a, that's a modern um, invention. The modern understanding of the way people are. When he's talking here about men consumed with passion or committing shameless acts of men, He's talking about people who are looking for more and more pleasurable, passionate experience. And he's just saying it is, it is on a continuum with a, with a heterosexual relationship, and they're just looking for more and more um, pleasurable experience. And so he condemns it in a fashion that is um, that has to do with homosexual behavior, and he doesn't really say anything about the orientation. And it is the orientation, I think, that causes so many people so much pain. And I, the reason that I, I bring that up is I think that all of us are oriented to some sort of sin. All of us are oriented to some sort of rebellion against God. And if we were honest, there are some of those orientations that are more painful than others. There's some that are more acceptable than others. I was just uh, I, I was just uh, around quite a bit this week. People who were oriented to gossip, which is later in our list. Okay. For the most part, it didn't cause them too much pain, but. I'll also say they fall squarely under the condemnation of God for what appears to be a not too painful orientation. And his point here is not to condemn homosexuality, it's to simply say all of us are condemned and one of the clearer manifestations of that has to do with homosexuality. And so that's and again, he's just using this language of exposure where he talks about the exchange and then he talks about giving up natural relationships. Because why? God gave them up. You see, he's trying to use this language to say this is an external manifestation of the internal problem. And when I talk about it this way, I hope that those of you who are here and you have those feelings and you have that um, 
internal desire. I hope you don't feel uh, condemned beyond what's warranted. Those of you who are here in self-righteous because you don't, I hope that you feel every bit as condemned. Because that is his point here. All of us are condemned. All of us have a heart problem. Some of it manifests differently than others. And because of that, because they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Who? See, not just people who are homosexual. All people. And this isn't just, he's just giving individuals over to their certain problems. He's giving everybody over to their own problems. Their own problems being that which alienates them to God. Because they did not see fit. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. So he gave them up, it says, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. To do what ought not to be done. Now again, what is this that ought not to be done? This is looking forward rather than looking back. Looking forward to verse 29. Here it is. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, covetousness, malice. They're angry about this. They're angry about that. They desire a nicer car. They wish that somebody else didn't have something that they wanted. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. You see, these are, these are much more pedestrian. And that's the very problem. In being pedestrian, we say, oh, that, they can't be that bad. They're in the same list. They're full of envy, murder, strife. This is everywhere. They're gossips. They're slanderers. And here's the problem. They're haters of God. It is a God problem that all of us have. They're insolent. They're haughty, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. When did that not happen? You see, I mean, there's one that you can escape here. Good luck. But this one, I'm sorry. This is pretty universal. They're foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And so, what he says here is they know God's righteous decree. And the beauty of this, and this is why we started the service with uh, Psalm 19, having declaring the glory of God, is because he's not talking about the law. He's not talking about the first half of your Bible, which has to do with the Ten Commandments or the law from Mount Sinai. Because he's not, he hasn't brought that up yet. He's talking about the righteousness of God that's obvious in the world. That all of us have a sense of right and wrong. All of us think that the world ought to be some way and that you shouldn't condemn me for something. Or that you, I mean, we all have things that somebody ought not do. You ought not hate people. You ought not to hurt them. Where did that come from? Where does that come from? That has to come from some sense that there is an ultimate right and wrong, which is God's righteous character, and it's made known through creation. 
though they know God's righteous decree. So all of us have an innate sense of this from creation. And the sense of it that we have is that those who do wrong deserve punishment. The problem with most of us is that we want to pick and choose the wrongs. We want to pick and choose the wrongs that somebody else does, but the wrongs that I do aren't there, that's part of the bad. You see, those are practice such things. The kinds of things in this list. They deserve to die. They deserve God's condemnation. God's condemnation rests on people who are sinners. It says they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is the other, this is the other thing that tells me this is, these came with broad strokes here. Because they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now think about, think about the, the news that you hear. Think about the award shows that you've seen in the past couple weeks. And what gets condemned and what gets approved there. And I just even think about NCAA and what they approve and disapprove when it comes to moral behavior. I mean, that's the way, that's the place our culture's at. That's what he's talking about here. When you look out, you see everybody is in one measure or another in trouble with God for either doing them or giving approval to those who practice them. And we are all set up for God's condemnation. We inherited it from Adam and Eve. We have found ourselves now exposed so that those who do these things deserve to die. There he ends chapter 1. Some of what he's doing here in chapter 1 is he's encouraging religious people to wag their fingers. That's right. Shame on them. Shame on those bad people. And if you look ahead, chapter 2 verse 1, that's next week. But if you look ahead, it says, you're without excuse you who judge. So what's happening here is this is this complete uh, expose on the human condition that says there is no amount of self-righteousness that counts for righteousness at all. You cannot pretend that something is true when it isn't. All of us stand before God deserving His condemnation. And so, what do we do about that? See, it's one thing, I mean, there really are two choices here. The first choice is to deny it, that it's true. 
and to say, I don't like this. It can't be right. And there are, there are a lot of people who, who deal with this that way. I don't like it. It can't be right. So, therefore, I'm going to pretend it's not. But you see, the reason God tells us these things is so that we go back to chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of this good news. Because you're not left in the bad news. Not ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For everyone who believes, the death of Jesus and his resurrection is more powerful than the death of your sin. The, the light of the gospel is more powerful than the darkness in your soul. The healing that Jesus brings is more powerful than the brokenness that your sin brings with it. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. God's standard what makes God right is clear in the life of Jesus, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection. God is proven good and right. You don't need to pretend that sin's okay. You don't need to dismiss it. You don't need to be self-righteous. You can simply say, all I need is Jesus. And when I have Jesus, I can be forgiven and accepted before God. And I can be made right. The righteous shall live by faith. And when I'm made right, then I can be fully alive. And that is the message of Christianity, which is different than then making an answer up out of nowhere that hopes beyond hope that I'm going to be good enough. It's the admission that I'm not good enough. And it really doesn't matter what my favorite problem is. I can have all kinds of problems. And God still makes me right. This morning, our privilege to remind ourselves of that another way. We've done it through the scriptures. I, I hope that it's been clear to you that the, the need that humanity has for Savior. We're going to remind ourselves of that another way in communion. There's two tables in the front and two in the rear. And I want to invite you during the next song to get out of your seats and uh, take the elements and return your seats and we'll all participate together. But we do this as a way of reminding ourselves that Jesus lived a perfect life, offered himself that you might be forgiven and made right with God. And it's his offering of himself that, that he told us about and in the Last Supper with his disciples. He said, this bread 
is my body. This and remember to me. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this when you drink it to remember me. See what we're doing when we when we read Romans chapter one is we're remembering Jesus and saying, you know what? We really do need Savior. When we're taking communion, what we're doing is we're remembering Jesus and saying, we really do have a Savior. And so I hope that in the next few minutes, your soul will just overflow with thanksgiving to God that, that He has not simply let us alone in our sin, but rather He's given us His Son. And that's what we'll remember together. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're visiting us this morning, I want to, I want to uh, encourage you to participate with us. If you're not sure yet, if you're uh, a believer, if you're, you're still weighing the evidence, if you're still thinking about it, then there's no shame in, in letting and just not participating in this part of the service. Uh, this is for those that are certain that they're trusting in Jesus to make them right. And, and really, you could do that this morning. You, as you weigh the, the seriousness of, the, of sin, and you say, what am I going to do about that? And you realize God has promised to take care of that for you. You could simply submit yourself to him and say, God, okay, I need that forgiveness you offer. I accept it. Will you please be my Savior to give me? And if you'll do that, you too can be forgiven today. And you too can find Jesus to be your Savior and look back and say um, with gratitude like the rest of us that Jesus has died for you. So will you pray with me and then we'll celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by the seriousness of the, not just the human condition in general, but my condition in particular, the condition of our own hearts. And so we come to Jesus as a Savior again, begging that we might be forgiven. Asking anew to be made right with you. And I thank you that that promise is good, that you have said that um, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So, God, we believe this morning. Help our unbelief. Use, use these moments as we reflect on the death of Jesus to settle our hearts to believe. We ask this. Amen. Amen.